Well, turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 15. If you're visiting with us, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark for uh, over a year now, uh, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, His life and ministry on earth. And uh, we're coming near to the end of that study. And in fact, today, uh, this morning and and next Sunday morning, we're going to be recounting His death. And so uh, it's a solemn account. It is a story that no doubt all of you will be familiar with if you've been in church. I mean, you you know the story of what took place, but we're going to look at it together and try to glean some new light from it and uh, try to be gripped with the, I think, the weight of the gospel and what Jesus endured for us and on our behalf. And so it's a story that I'm excited to preach about this morning, and it's it's a story that I hope grips your heart today as we read it together. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can grab one that's provided there for you. We're going to be in Mark 15. We'll pick up where we left off last time. Uh, we're going to read verses 16 through 32, which is just before the crucifixion, which recounts essentially the suffering that led up to that point. Mark 15, we'll begin reading in verse 16. Before we do that, let's take a moment and pray. The Lord our God, we now turn to your word. And doing so, we recognize our complete insufficiency and inability. God, we don't deserve your word. We are unable to read rightly and understand your word. Uh, We're we're not able to understand the truth of the gospel by our nature from your word. And so we acknowledge this morning our desperate need for you for the ministry of your Spirit to work in us, to uh, open our eyes, to illuminate our hearts. Uh, For your word is holy and righteous, and we're wicked and unrighteous. So God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Plant your word deep in us. And and Lord, let it have its work in us that we might be be made more like Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Mark 15, beginning in verse 16, this is what we read. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third among, <clears throat> and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, "The King of the Jews." And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, "Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So this is a sobering account of what took place to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Uh, The hands of wicked and sinful men that he has voluntarily given himself up to as they now take hold of him and begin the process as continue the process that we've seen begun previously of the 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 fake trial and the bogus charges and the the beating and the mocking and the suffering that is uh, being experienced by christ here but but in this passage just before he's crucified um, it it's ratcheted up to a whole nother level and so Uh, One of the things we have to acknowledge, though, about Mark's account, since we're dealing specifically with this gospel, is if you go to the other gospel accounts and the other gospel writers, one of the things that you recognize very quickly, as with the rest of Mark and so many of the stories that he's told, is that he writes even this sobering account of the suffering of Jesus with great economy, Uh, very brief relative to the others. He, He gives very little of some of the gory details And I would argue for you as we begin that I think that that's for a good purpose. As we've seen time and again, I don't think it's just coincidental or because Mark was in a hurry. I think Mark has a different intent than helping us to just focus on the physical suffering. And so much of what sort of centers around and the study and discussion that centers around the suffering of Jesus at his crucifixion, it centers just on the brutality of the event. And and it is significant to be sure. We're going to talk about it and look at it together. It is unimaginable to be sure, but I would contend for you that it's not the only thing that we need to take account of and that we need to take note of. And I think Mark is trying to press us to that reality that there are some other things going on, that he wants us to get some other things from it, that he wants us to learn some additional things. So as, as, as we consider this story um, of Jesus, the savior who voluntarily hands himself over as it were, um, I, I want us to consider three aspects about it, that it's a story of suffering a story of submission, and a story of substitution. It's pretty simple. It's pretty plain. I mean, there's nothing special about those three points. But maybe more so than some of the other passages we've looked at, I just want us to read the narrative together and work down through the narrative together. And, and when you do that, you cannot get away from the reality of the suffering that Jesus submitted himself to. Let's think about this. At the very outset, it is suffering by the death of crucifixion. You know, Jesus knows because they have declared, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He knows that he is headed steadfastly to the cross. And that's not an insignificant reality. Crucifixion was a special judgment in that day. It was the most horrific way of dying that they knew that, that they could even conceive of. And it was a judgment, a capital punishment that was reserved for only the most heinous of criminals and the vilest of offenders. That you, you had to commit the most unbelievable acts of wickedness in their day to, to qualify, as it were, or to be uh, judged or sentenced to death by crucifixion. And it is this death, this most bloody and gruesome and gory type of death and way to be killed that Jesus is going to suffer. It's going to be a death by crucifixion, but it's not just the crucifixion. Let's consider then, as we see in this passage, even prior to the crucifixion that is coming, all of the suffering that led up to it. First, 
He suffers the condemnation of unrighteous and evil men and the false charges that they levy against him. This is suffering that is real. I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just a second. It's not possible, but just to, just to imagine the God of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge of all men, to whom these wicked men must one day stand before and give an account. And he is standing before them, listening to them condemn him to die. In their unrighteousness, in their wickedness, as they hurl lies and just spew this wickedness upon him, he stands silently, as we've seen as he was before the Sanhedrin, and then when they could not execute the capital punishment and the judgment of the capital punishment, so they drug him before the Roman governors, and and he stood before Pilate. Both accounts, he stands silent. And now, at the time of his beating and scourging, at the time of the bringing about of the judgment and the sentence that they handed down, he is willingly subjecting himself. But it's not just about the physical. Can you imagine the inner turmoil, the mental struggle that must have been going on in the mind of Christ, the spiritual battle as he is allowing unrighteous, wicked men whom he knows will give an account to him, judge him, condemn him to die beat him, bruise him, spit on him, mock him, all of the above. Can you imagine the the shame that he would have felt? He suffers the condemnation of unrighteous and evil men and the false charges that they hurl. And it's expressed by them as we see him suffering this great shame and the mockery that then ensues. Let's go back to the beginning of the text. So it says, the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they call together the whole battalion. So notice there that they're, they're congregating. They're, they're getting a, a larger group together. They're, they're, they're calling men together and officials and soldiers, and they're, they're all coming together for the purpose of shaming him, for the purpose of mocking him and condemning him. And let's see what happens. They clothe him in a purple cloak. Purple is the color of majesty. It's the purple that, you know, officials and rulers and kings would have worn. And you remember the charge that they have made, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews, that he claimed to be the the king of God's people, that he claimed to be the Messiah, the divinely appointed and long-awaited redeemer of God's people. And it's only to that charge in the two trials that have taken place, if we can call them that, it's only to that charge that Jesus has anything to say. Are you the king of the Jews? You you have said rightly. Are you the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, the Redeemer? You have said rightly. You are correct. It's only to that. But notice, it is that single reality that angered them to the point of judging him to death. we, We pointed that. Isn't that the same anger that Adam and Eve had and these men expressed and that ultimately we express in our hearts as well? When, when God declares, when Jesus, our Savior, declares to be our Lord and our God, the sovereign ruler of our lives and determiner of our steps, that we most, in, as in no other way, we stand back and fight against him and say, no, I am my own boss and I am my own God. It, it, it's, the, it's the claim to be the king that angered them the most. And notice, it's that, that single claim that they seek to undermine and diminish more than anything else. So what do they do? They mock him as a king because they don't believe that he is the ruler. 
Everything they're doing is to, they're, they're making fun of him. They're making him a laughing stock, saying he's not a real king. He claims to be a king, but he's a nobody. So they put a purple robe on him. They twist together a crown. I know you've all seen it, but, but you must understand that this is not like a little briar patch type crown that they place upon his head. This is a crown that has thorns that are strong enough and substantial enough that in order for it to fit down upon his head, it must be jammed down upon his brow and pierced down into him. And he would have been probably pouring with blood at this point. And so twisting together a crown of thorns, they place it on his head again. They give him this purple robe. They give him this fake crown and they jide him as the king that he claims to be. Little did they know. And they began to salute him. Hail to the king of the Jews. And their, their mockery, that, that it, it's astounding really at this point. As, as he suffered under them, pretending, as they pretended to treat him as a king and to honor his majesty, and he experiences the shame and humiliation then of not only being made fun of and undermining his claims of authority to be the king, the shame of humiliation of public nakedness. Notice what happens. They take his own clothes off of him in order to put the robe on him. We know that because they ultimately, it says, put his clothes back on him. Some of the translation in, these, in, in the verses about the clothing is a little bit difficult. But then when he's crucified, it's done naked because they, what? They take his clothes and they cast lots for it. So, so it's not enough to mock him. It's not enough to make him a laughing stock to try to undermine the claims that he made to be the king of God's people and to be the ruler of all men. They're going to make him endure public nakedness and, and just the most intense form of public and physical shame and humiliation that you can possibly imagine. But it's even more than the physical. Again, think about the mental. Think about the mental and the spiritual, the psychological aspects of the shame that he would have felt, the suffering that he endured in those, the loss of his integrity. Can you, can you imagine? You know, one of the things that in, in my life, maybe you're not like me, but, but one thing that gets me going more than anything else is if somebody makes a false charge against me. You know, people always say the, the louder you, uh, you know, the, the harder and the louder you deny something, the more guilty you seem to be. Well, friends, I'm going to look real guilty then because if somebody's calling me a, a liar or an adulterer or a philanderer, I'm going to be shouting at the top of my lungs that, they are, they are, they're, they're, that it's a false charge. You know, my, my integrity before men and before God, it matters to me. The righteousness that he's bestowed upon me at, at my conversion when he regenerated me and placed faith in my heart and called me out of the darkness and placed me in the light of Christ and, and then empowers me by the Holy Spirit to walk a righteous but not perfect life, it matters to me. This is the King of kings and the God of glory being called an unrighteous heretic. And he doesn't say anything about it. He's being called all sorts of terrible things. Can you imagine the shame, the public shame that he would have felt being a totally righteous, totally upstanding man, totally right before God, never having committed the first sin, not even a sin of, of thought, not, not, never a sin of intent, never offending the law a single solitary time. And he's now being charged as a criminal made to be a social outcast. So sure, he's physically beaten. But can you imagine the psychological 
shame and suffering that he endured and the the social shame and suffering that he endured. Friends, it goes farther than that, though. He suffers this great shame and and, and, and physical beating and social, uh, social and psychological suffering, but he also suffers the loss of his authority and his deity. And, and this is supremely important. Think, think about Jesus, who, who knew that at any moment he could call down hosts of God's angels to battle. Not that it would have been necessary. He, he could have snapped his fingers and every one of his adversaries would have been leveled. The, the, the authority of all of the universe, the one through whom and to whom God created everything, the one who all of creation has been placed under his feet, who, has, who will in a few short days from this one that we are speaking about, ascend into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory. He is a king, and he is not like an earthly king. He is God Almighty. And it was his identity that he was interested in defending. It was his identity that he's been seeking to make clear to his disciples. He's been trying to show them and to communicate to them that he is God come in the flesh, incarnated, to redeem men. He is the Messiah. He is the, the, the redeemer of God's people and the ruler of God's people. And it is this identity, this authority, in fact, almost his deity, that he lost when he endured the shame. He was willing to suffer. You know, Tim Keller, who I quote from all the time in speaking about this passage, he said, it is in the shame and the suffering, all of this physical brutality that Jesus subjected himself to, and I'm paraphrasing now, he says that Jesus was removed from the dance. Speaking of the dance of the Trinity, that he was undone. As he, as he suffered under the unmitigated wrath of God. And that's actually the last one. He suffers the loss of his authority. They told him that his words were not true. <laughs> they told him that his promises were not sure. They told him that his kingship and his kingdom were coming to an end. And, and he experienced all of this in an earthly sense, giving very little rebuttal. But it's because he suffered the most important of all, as I said a moment ago, the unmitigated wrath of God against sin. Let's, let's look at what happens they began to salute him, hail to the king of the Jews, and strike him on the head, physically beating him with a reed, spitting upon him this great act of derision and uh, disrespect, kneeling down in homage to him, that is, mocking him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So they got this man to carry the beam that he was carrying. He probably wasn't carrying the whole cross. It would have been too heavy to, for any man to carry, especially one that had been beaten unrecognizably. He was probably carrying the beam that would have gone across where his hands would have been nailed to. And even that, maybe up to 80 or 100 pounds, would have been too great a weight. So they get this man, and, and I think the, the force of the original text here is they force him. They have to compel him to, to get out and to participate and to bear this burden for Jesus. But then look what it says in verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, the only act of grace that we see 
from any of these men in all of this text. The only merciful thing that is done for Christ is they offer him this strong drink mixed with this uh, myrrh so that it can somehow be a little bit of an anesthetic and it can alleviate some of the pain. Have you ever wondered why Jesus refused to drink it? It is because he knew that in order for our sins to be atoned for, the complete and unmitigated and un, uh, uninhibited wrath of God against sin must be borne. That he must experience God's wrath against sin in all of its wretchedness. That if he was going to bear all of our sin, he must pay the penalty for all of our sin. And so, yes, he suffers physically and he suffers psychologically, but he suffers spiritually. As he loses his identity as a member of the Godhead, as he is separated from them and cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? As we will see next week, and everything turns dark because he is suffering the unmitigated wrath of God against sin. Remember, he was counted and numbered with the criminals. He was no longer seen as righteous. He is bearing the sin of men upon his shoulders. The darkness that's going to come is going to be in the middle of the day. It's going to be staggering. We'll see that next week. It's a story of great suffering. But it's also a story of submission. And and I've mentioned this. It's hard to talk about the suffering that Jesus endured without telling a little bit and talking and thinking a little bit about how in the world he got there, as we've already seen up to this point, it is because of a voluntary act of submission. We have seen, as Jesus has declared, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly that I might also take it up again. And this charge and this power and this authority has been given to me by my father, Jesus says. The reason that no man could lay hold of him, that the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Roman authorities, that they could not touch him until his hour had come. Because Jesus is in control of all of the details. As Peter will declare in in, in days after this event, in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was not delivered up by men. He was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. As we've seen when Jesus rode into town on a little donkey and sends his disciples in to find certain people, all of those peculiar details. Don't you remember what I said time and time and time again? That every detail of this event has been planned from eternity. That there was an eternal transaction that took place between God the Son and God the Father where they covenanted together to come and redeem us. To give his life a ransom for many. And so this plan must must come to be. So it's a voluntary submission to these mortal men. They're not taking Jesus' life. Jesus is laying it down. The God of glory is choosing not to smoke them in an instant. He is he is willingly allowing them to, to, to capture him and to beat him and to mock him and to shame him without calling angels down, without calling fire from heaven down, without snapping his fingers at them and leveling them in a moment. And he could do all of those things. But it's not only a submission to mortal men, friends. Maybe, not maybe, but more importantly, it is a voluntary submission by Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to the will and plan, the eternal plan of God the Father. What did Jesus say? I have come to do only the will of the one that sent me. And it is only in the time that was appointed from eternity past that any of these things happened. And they happened just as all of them. One of the ways we know that from this passage, and you probably haven't seen it at first glance, but I'm going to show it to you. One of the ways we know that from this passage is because Mark goes, I think, to great detail 
in his economy. And he goes to great length and great effort to show us not just that these events are brutal and to focus on all of the gory details, but that all of these events are, in fact, the fulfillment of Scripture. So he's alluding to the Old Testament. If you go back to Isaiah 53, and we'll not turn there, we looked there last week, but in Isaiah 53, the the song of the suffering servant, he's making all these allusions about the prophecies made about how Christ must suffer, how Jesus, the Redeemer, must suffer. Remember, we saw that last time, and it's playing out exactly as it must. But there's another one. When we look at verses 16 through 20 at the mockery that takes place and the shame that takes place that Mark seems to focus on, turn with me, if you will, back to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, just just listen to these verses. In verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Then let's look at verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. You see the mockery. Then let's go down to verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted with my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, and company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. That is to mock him. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does Mark not point to that reality? The mockery, the nakedness, the shame. Why? Because this Jesus is not just a man, he is God in the flesh, come to redeem sinners. He is the eternally appointed and long-awaited Messiah. The one that the Old Testament scriptures prophesied of, and he is making clear to us in these verses that we completely and fully understand just who it was. And friends, here's the thing. Not only would this Jesus have to willingly submit himself to these men if they were ever to bring this to be, Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, would have had to willingly submit to God's plan for his life in all of its peril, with all of its suffering, with all of its difficulty, in order for this to come to be. Don't you remember we we talked about that at great length when we saw Jesus in the garden, knowing the cup of God's wrath and suffering that awaits him. And he says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me but not my will, yours be done. This voluntary submission by Jesus here. The story is astounding. The suffering is intense. The submission is amazing. And friends, ultimately, the question for anybody that reads this text is why? I, I don't know how you can read this text and read, if you if you have any comprehension at all, of who Jesus actually was, that that he was God in the flesh who humiliated himself 
took on sinful flesh, suffered under God's hand patiently under the the sovereign providence of God and planned for redemption of men. As he... If you have any comprehension of those realities, how you cannot read what took place and what was done to him and say, why? Why? Not, not just why would it happen, but why would Jesus allow himself to be apprehended by wicked men and mocked and beaten by wicked men and shamed in a physical and a social and a spiritual way by these wicked men who he was the God of? Further than that, why would Jesus lay down his life voluntarily? The judge allowing those whom he will one day judge to judge him. How does that happen and why? Maybe further than either of those, why would God's plan for the life of his only begotten son include such great suffering? Friends, that's a a fantastic question. There are preachers who are going to stand in pulpits all across this country this morning. You can go home and find them on your TV. And they're going to tell you that God's plan for your life as a child of the king does not include any suffering. That God wants you to be happy. That God wants you to be healthy. That God wants you to be rich and famous. And that if, that, that if you don't possess all those things, if you're enduring any suffering, you must have done something wrong or at least have not claimed the promises of God and the intended blessings from him for you in your life. What a, what a ridiculous thing to say. The only begotten of God... Jesus Christ, second person of the Godhead, incarnated in the flesh, God's plan for his life included greater suffering and shame than any of us will ever be called to bear. The question is why? Friends, don't you see that the answer is for us? Because that eternal transaction that I spoke to you about a moment ago where God saw us in our wickedness and set us apart for vessels of honor. And then God the Father and God the Son made this covenant with us to come and get us. We we could never have gotten to Him. The, The chasm between us and God is so vast that it's not possible to be crossed. And so because we could not get to where God is, God made a covenant promise to come to where we are. And he did it in the person and work of Jesus. He did it in the doing and in the dying of Jesus, as J.C. Ryle says. That everything we have and every hope that we have and every promise and blessing that we enjoy, it, it can all be traced back to the doing and the dying of Jesus. See, it was not only a submission, it was a substitution. Friends, Jesus stood in our place. He was standing for us. He was representing us. He was not only representing us, but he was receiving from God what should have been for us. The wrath of sin that we have earned. The death and shame that we have earned by virtue of our disobedience to God's law. So that Jesus was making a substitutionary sacrifice. He was bearing our curse. He was bearing our shame. He was receiving the just condemnation that was supposed to come to us. And he ultimately would receive the death that should have been ours. 
And friends, don't you see that it's because Jesus was condemned that we are acquitted. He endured this suffering so that through his suffering we might have peace. He endured shame so that through it we might receive glory. And it's only through his death that we sinners are granted life and peace and hope. Friends, in this substitution, what I want you to see in the gospel is that in the person of Jesus, perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient, where we were not. Go all the way back with me to when we began the gospel of Mark and we saw the the baptism of Christ. Do you remember? I, I went to great lengths to try to show you from Scripture that that is a recreation account, that Jesus comes as the second Adam, that in the garden in a relationship with God under temptation by the law, Adam failed and brought death. So God sends Christ, the second Adam, who is sent into the wilderness to be tempted, but in the face of temptation, he is totally obedient, and his utter obedience brings life. Do you see that you are disobedient and I am disobedient? For Paul declares there is none righteous, not even one. He goes further to declare that the law cannot save anybody. It's not even intended to do that. That for what the law has not done, God has done for us in the person of Jesus. How? He came and he lived a righteous, totally righteous, completely obedient life so that through his obedience, he secures the blessing of the promised blessings of the covenant for us. So that it's his obedience reckoned to us through which we receive blessing. But even farther, because we have transgressed and broken the law, he receives the punishment so that he is receiving the curse of the broken covenant not only being perfectly obedient, bringing us the blessing, but receiving the curse, alleviating us from having to experience the death. You see that he is the one who declares you may obey and live or you may disobey and die. He he is the judge who then in order to reconcile us with himself, the disobedient transgressor, He has voluntarily made himself the judged. The judge and the judged. Doing what we can't in obedience and suffering in his death so that we would not have to. Friends, I don't know if you've ever understood the gospel that way. That may be a new, that may be a new reality for you, but but I would encourage you this morning to think carefully about this. The promise of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, is not only that you can't ever be good enough to get to where God is, but but that you don't have to. Which means if you espouse a gospel and an understanding of salvation whereby you feel that you have to be good enough for God, then you have no need for Jesus. And all of the suffering and all of the shame that he endured that we have spoken of and read about and thought about this morning. All of the submission to, to, to the suffering under the hands of these men and to the providence and suffering of God's plan for his life. All that we have thought and talked about means nothing for you. But if you understand that, that the gospel has, has been given to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been given because 
we could never be good enough to save ourselves. We could never be good enough to merit righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, because of that reality, God made him who knew no sin, perfect obedience, that's Jesus, to become sin. And, and, and meaning to stand under the judgment of sin for us, that in him, and, and only through him, not, not, not that in him we would be more well-behaved, not that in him we would be more obedient, not that in him we would ultimately look like God and, and, and be made like him because we're good enough, but, but he made him to be sin for us so that in him we would be declared the righteousness of God. See, it's a declarative righteousness. A substitutionary death whereby our sin is imputed to Jesus. He bears the curse of that imputation. And his righteousness and perfect obedience to the law and the blessings that flow to it from flow to him from the promises of God, his righteousness and obedience is imputed to us. You see that? He receives our death so that we can receive his life. Friends, I hope and pray that that's the gospel you believe in, that that's the Jesus you believe in, that you are utterly and completely dependent upon Christ, recognizing your frailty and understanding that only God, through the person, the doing and the dying of Jesus, can save sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us in Mark that we've been given to study for these, these months now. Lord, as it comes to a conclusion and as we think carefully about the doing and the dying of your son Jesus and what you did through him for us. Lord, Lord I pray that, that this reality would, would weigh heavy upon us today. That, that we would be able and given by the power of your spirit to truly and rightly understand that our disobedience has been imputed to Jesus, our wickedness, our transgression, our sin, and he bears the death and his obedience and life has been imputed to us. And Father, that is the only way that any sinner can be reconciled with you, that we can be justified. God, I thank you that you set me apart for glory. Father, and that the gospel has changed me. That the atoning blood of Christ has covered my sin. It's a sacrifice I am not worthy of that I can never measure up to. Father, but I, but I pray that you would fill my heart and, and those of the people in this room with gratitude for Christ. That we would not leave this passage without a deep sense of what he has done. The gravity and the weight of the suffering that he endured. But that we would not leave this passage until we have a right understanding that it was all done for us. So that we could be with you. God, thank you that while we were dead in our trespass and sin, you loved us enough to send Jesus to get us. And so I pray that we would all be found only trusting in him by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.